This month on Security Management Highlights. A group of hackers, dubbed the Shadow Brokers, claimed that they hacked into the NSA. Cyber vulnerabilities stored by the U.S. National Security Agency could pose a major threat to Internet security. Cybersecurity editor Megan Gates shares more. So they were shocked when a few months later they got approved to go to this website and pick out any excess military equipment they wanted. A U.S. government watchdog goes undercover and finds major holes in a program providing surplus military gear. National Security Editor Lily Chapa stops by with the story. Plus, you naturally are a more attractive place to work if you have this flexibility. Senior Editor Mark Tarallo has the scoop on how a strong telecommuting policy could benefit your organization. I'm your host, Associate Editor Holly Gilbert-Stowell, and that's all coming up on Security Management Highlights. Recent cyber attacks have cast light on the U.S. National Security Agency's practice of storing zero-day vulnerabilities. Cybersecurity Editor Megan Gates is here to tell us more. Hi, Megan. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Holly. Thanks for having me. So for those of us who aren't quite fluent in cyber lingo, tell us what an exploit is and why they're so dangerous. I like to talk about definitions, which are very important in cyber because not everybody uses the same ones. But an exploit can be a piece of software, a set of data, or commands that prompt a malicious action to happen. So exploits usually take advantage of a vulnerability. Sometimes they're called bugs to cause unintended behavior to happen on computer software or hardware. A lot of people talk about a zero-day exploit. These are unknown exploits. They expose a vulnerability in software or hardware, meaning they have not been detected before. And so zero-day cyber attacks are when someone uses that zero-day exploit to launch a cyber attack before a developer creates a patch to fix the vulnerability. And you write that the U.S. National Security Agency actually stores such vulnerabilities. Why would the NSA keep these exploits lying around, and what troubles has that practice led to recently? Well, the NSA, they keep these kinds of exploits because they use them to get access to targeted computer systems for for cyber espionage, for other activities that the NSA engages in. So they do actually store some exploits, but the head of the NSA, uh, Admiral Mike Rogers, recently testified before Congress, you know, and said that the NSA has a disclosure rate for these exploits of approximately 93%. So 93% of the time, they're telling the vendor, the person who would be impacted by the exploit about the exploit so that they can take action, release patches so that their system is not vulnerable. But the remaining part of those, the NSA keeps for their, their own use and their own activities. And this can cause problems because recently a group of hackers dubbed the Shadow Brokers claimed that they hacked into the NSA and they stole an exploit called Eternal Blue and they posted posted it online, and that similar exploit was then used to spread the WannaCry and NotPetya ransomware attacks that we saw all summer long. So in response to these issues, the NSA has an established vulnerabilities equity process. How did that system come about, Megan, and how might it help address the problem of these zero-day exploits? Yeah, so this process, the VEP, we'll call it that for short, was actually initially developed under the George W. Bush administration. He directed some agency heads to sort of figure out if they needed to create a process to address vulnerabilities, and then it became an actual process that was used under the Obama administration. And there's no formal release of how the process works, but based off of my research, leaning heavily on memos from the Congressional Research Service, prior media accounts, 
and a blog post by former White House cybersecurity coordinator Michael Daniel. I was able to discover that when the NSA is determining whether it should disclose an exploit to a vendor, it considers several factors, such as the extent of the vulnerable system's use in the Internet's infrastructure, whether that exploit is known to someone else, and if that person or organization is exploiting it, and if that exploit is needed by the NSA for intelligence collection, um, and also how likely the vulnerability is to be discovered by others. And several people have been vocal about this program. So what were some of the various responses to this program that you discovered while writing the piece? Yeah, well, there have been lots of people, you know, on both sides of the fence. But one of the most outspoken critics has been Microsoft through their president and chief legal officer, Brad Smith. He's said on multiple occasions and in multiple blog posts that he thinks that this process that the NSA uses should be re-examined um, and that they should not be allowed to keep these kinds of exploits from vendors because it's placing their security and our security at risk. Lawmakers have also expressed concern. So there's some proposed legislation out there to sort of create a more formal vulnerabilities equities process to include more people in the government in the process. But what we've seen with Congress that is unlikely to advance, I would say, in the next several months. And then there have also been other critics, Ari Schwartz and Rob Nakey. They both served in cyber roles with the National Security Council, and they wrote a big white paper about the VEP. And they also recommended that it be strengthened through a formalization process. But I did think it was interesting that really no one I spoke to thought that the NSA didn't need the ability to have exploits to carry out its work to conduct cyber espionage using them. I spoke to Jonathan Couch, Senior Vice President of Strategy at Threat Quotient, who also served in the U.S. Air Force at the NSA. And he just said that this is part of espionage now. And he had a great quote and he just said, it's just not realistic for NSA, CIA, or the military or other international governments to start disclosing these tools they've developed for cyber espionage. So interesting to hear these different perspectives on the issue. Thanks so much for joining us, Megan. Thanks for having me, Holly. The U.S. Defense Department's program to transfer military equipment to other agencies or governments was found to have serious weaknesses when a government watchdog investigated. National Security Editor Lily Chapa is here to give us the story. Hey, Lily. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Can you give us a little more background on the Law Enforcement Support Office program? What is it and what changes has it been through in recent years? Sure. The program allows federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies to have their pick of surplus military equipment, ranging from training devices and tactical gear to armored vehicles and small arms and ammunition. The program has been around since 1991, and since then, more than $6 billion worth of property has been transferred to almost 9,000 law enforcement agencies. The program has become somewhat contentious as concerns over militarized police responses rose due to some high-profile protests that turned violent over the past couple of years. So in 2015, Obama reined in the types of controlled equipment agencies had access to. But earlier this year, President Trump restored the program to its full breadth. And you write that the Government Accountability Office uncovered fraudulent activity within the LESO program. And what the GAO did was pretty remarkable, Lily. So the GAO is kind of known for putting out these technical, wonky reports on whatever Congress asked them to investigate. So I was really captivated by this one study they did on the LESO program 
which started out pretty normal until the researchers realized that one of the federal agencies that had been approved for the program was actually ineligible. They wouldn't really tell me if the paperwork was filled out wrong or if somebody actually made up an agency to get access to this equipment, but the GAO researchers decided that to figure out how this could have happened, they would create their own fictitious agency. So you spoke to the GAO about this? I did, yeah. I talked to the folks in charge of this specific report. Um, So long story short, this sting operation went way further than they expected it to. Researchers made up this fake agency and applied for the LESO program, but added in a lot of red flags, like using a website that didn't end in a .gov address. So they were shocked when a few months later, they got approved to go to this website and pick out any excess military equipment they wanted. They ordered about 100 items, but didn't order any weapons because they felt like that crossed the line. But they could have if they wanted to. Then one of these GAO guys drives to a warehouse, passes a security inspection, and is given even more equipment than they initially ordered. Just imagine these really scholarly guys walking out of this warehouse with armfuls of millions of dollars of military equipment. It's crazy. And as a result of this undercover investigation, several recommendations for the LESO program were made. So what were some of the things that they recommended? Yeah, there's clearly a lot going on here. The GEO recommended that the Defense Logistics Agency, which is the organization that oversees the LESO program, revise its application procedures, conduct fraud risk assessments, and double-check the identification of anyone picking up equipment as well as exactly what they are getting. The GAO folks I spoke to said the program managers were really surprised at the successful sting and have already begun implementing changes, including actually visiting participating agencies in person to make sure they are real. Well, thank you so much for giving us some extra added detail that couldn't fit into the magazine on this column, and thanks for stopping by. Thanks. A Gallup report found that about 43% of American workers are working remotely in some capacity at least one day a week. Senior editor Mark Tarallo is here to give us a look at how telecommuting is impacting the workplace. Hi, Mark. Thanks for stopping by today. Hi, Holly. What is the current state of teleworking for U.S. employees, and what are some of the reasons behind this growing trend? Yes, it is a growing trend, as you say. Uh, Right now, about 43% of U.S. workers work remotely in some capacity, even if that just means telecommuting only once a week or even once a month. That's according to the 2017 version, the latest version of Gallup's annual report, The State of the American Workplace. The percentage is up. It was 39% in 2012. It's now 43%. And also, as telecommuting becomes more popular, the percentage of U.S. teleworking employees who spend 80% or more of their time at home, so basically like at least four days per week, that's increased from 24% in 2012 to 31% in 2016. So now it's almost one third. There's a few drivers, I think. One is that the federal government for the last several years actually has had a big federal initiative to promote teleworking. Back in 2010, they passed the U.S. Telework Enhancement Act, and that required the head of each executive agency to establish policies where employees could be authorized to telework. So the government kind of stepped in and has really been trying to take the lead in terms of setting policies for teleworking. It's also down from the grassroots level 
the younger workers, the 20-somethings, they're looking for things like flexibility, work-life balance, things like that. So teleworking and the possibility of working from a remote location, working from home, that's really in line with what a lot of younger workers want. So they're another driver. What are some of the benefits of telecommuting for an organization's overall effectiveness and its bottom line? It's been shown now in a few studies that the organizations can really benefit from having a very robust telework policy. One of the reasons is that you naturally are a more attractive place to work for a lot of people if you have this flexibility of the possibility of teleworking. So an organization can increase its retention, increase its recruiting ability, because all of a sudden it has a kind of better reputation as allowing this flexibility. One big problem with organizations across the U.S. workplace is employee engagement. Telecommuting can really help. If you think about a part-time teleworker, they're spending part of the time in the office and part of the time at home or a remote location, pretty much working at home. That balance of some alone time, some collaborative time is the sweet spot for a lot of workers. So it really can be really beneficial for the organization and for the employees, kind of a win-win. So Mark, for any company that's considering implementing a telecommute policy, what are some best practices that they can consider and where did you get those from? Best practices often come from studies that people have done on successful telework programs. And what they show is that there's an important distinction of while you or any employee who's teleworking may be working at home or alone in the remote location, you really still want to approach this as a team thing. So think of your organizations developing a telework policy, they want to say, okay, what's going to work for all of us? What's a schedule that works for all of us? If several of us are teleworking, we can kind of keep in touch as a team, you know, whether it be Skype, whether it be email, whether it be through video or whatever, we can have kind of virtual water coolers where we agree, okay, at two o'clock, we're all going to check in with each other via Skype. So you can maintain these type of teamwork practices while everybody's working remotely. Even little things like if someone emails you, you get back to them within an hour or hour and a half, just so it's showing that, okay, I'm still here, I'm responsive. So the teamwork concept is still really important for teleworking. Sounds like there is a lot of advantages for companies implementing a strong telework policy. Thanks so much for joining us, Mark. Thanks, Holly. That does it for this month's podcast. Be sure to tune in throughout the month for bonus material and make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes or SoundCloud so you don't miss an episode. Once again, I'm your host, Associate Editor Holly Gilbert Stowell. Until next time, bye-bye.